You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. sermon text and our sermon text this morning comes from Colossians chapter 1 verse 9 to 14 and if you don't have a Bible with you please um, feel free to grab one of the Bibles in front of the pews take it it's a gift from our church to you but in the pew Bible it is on page 983 that we're turning to 983 and for those uh, who may have picked up a bulletin and seen the name Dr. Will Johnston there. Just uh, bear in mind that there's a typo there. My name is Daniel and I'll I'll be leading the sermon this morning and Dr. Johnston is off the hook. (laughs) Good. Uh, And if you don't have a bulletin yet, they're they're out the front there. We had a slight printing delay this morning, so we apologize for that and feel free just to grab one. But let me read... From Colossians 1, verse 9 to 14, five simple verses. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let us come before God to pray. God, as we come to examine your word this morning, we confess that we're not really good at prayer. We confess that we pray much less than we should. And we ask for things that are not aligned to your will for us in this life. We pray, Father, that you may open up your word to us. Help us to hear what you have to say in these five short verses about prayer. And help us, God, to glorify you in everything that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How would you answer the question, if someone asked you, how should I pray for Christians? And specifically, how should I pray for Christians I've never met before? Some of us may actually be caught off guard because we don't regularly engage in praying for other people. Some of us may try and answer that question. We might say, well, we can ask that God will protect them that God will give them good health, that God will give them security, or God will bless them in a general sense. But if we were to be honest with ourselves, none of these things have anything to do with our calling as Christians, does it? 
This morning, we're going to have a great opportunity to examine how Paul prays for other Christians. In these five verses that we just read, we're going to see what exactly does Paul ask for, and hopefully we'll learn something and model after that in our lives. Now, for those of us who are here for the first time or who are just returning from vacation or holidays, we started a new series last week. We're now in the book of Colossians. And last week, Dr. Johnston opened up the book by giving us the framework to Colossians, as well as looking into what it means to have faith and love and hope. And today, we're going to learn about how to pray. And I find this particular passage really interesting because Paul is praying for Christians whom he has never met before. These aren't necessarily friends of his. He may have known of, uh, and and indeed we we think he's friends with Apaphras and Philemon, but aside from that, there's real no evidence that he has ever been to this church before or met anyone there. And so, as we go on in the sermon, I want you to remember four key words, and they're in your bulletin today. The first is concern. Second is knowledge. Third is strength. And lastly, thanksgiving. And this should be as easy as ABC. Concern, knowledge, strength, and thanks. Let's start with verse 9. Verse 9 tells us, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And immediately we should just pause here and observe here that Paul has this great concern for Christians. Not just Christians that's been entrusted in his care, not just Christians whom he's discipled, but Christians everywhere. And because he's so far from them, he can't love on them, he can't invite them over, he can't take them out for a meal, he can't just sit with them and study the word together. He does the next best thing. He prays for them. He prays for them, not just once or twice, but it tells us here that he prays for them continuously. He does not cease praying for them. Now, there should be a staggering idea to us. These are people he's never met before. They've never visited. They're not under his care. And think about the time that we're living in, in the early, less than, you know, 50s or 70s AD. There's no telephone. There's no emails. There's no magazines or newsletter circulation that comes out every day. You really need it to go out of your way to show concern for each other. You really need it to take pains to go and ask questions about how such and such a person or who, whoever it is that you want to find out about is doing. You had to go out and search who's been recently through the city of Colossae. And that's exactly what Paul did, right? He talks to Apophis. And he asks about these Colossians, about this newly founded church, and he wants to learn about them. And this isn't just an isolated pattern that we see. It's not just a once-off. If you study all the epistles in the New Testament that's written by Paul, 13 of them, you can see that this pattern repeats itself again and again. I'm going to mention a couple of them just to illustrate. 1 Thessalonians In the opening, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
There he was writing to a church. In Philemon, he writes to an individual, and he does the same thing. He says in Philemon verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. You see, to Paul, showing concern for other Christians is not a chore. It's not a chore. In fact, he is encouraged whenever he shows concern for someone. It's counterintuitive. Not only does the recipient of prayer benefit from it, but Paul personally benefits from having prayed for someone, having shown concern for someone. We see in 1 Thessalonians and Philemon 4, the passages that we read, that he gets encouragement personally by their faith. He gets encouragement by how they've been translating their faith into love, into action. He gets encouraged by the testimony that they are living in these pagan cities, by how their example is reaching out into all of the world, how they're propagating the gospel. And then in all of this, he gets blessed spiritually and energized. Philemon verse 7 says, For I have derived much joy and comfort. Not a little bit. I derived much of it through hearing about you. From your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now we can really take a note from Paul's book, can't we, this morning? How intentionally are you in seeking out others and showing concern for them and praying for them? Let's start here at a local community at Redeemer Bible Church. Look around this morning. How well do you know the person in front of you, behind you, across the aisle from you? Do you know what pressures and difficulties that they've recently experienced from trying to obey God's work, uh, word in the workplace and at school? Do you know of the recent joys and blessings that they've enjoyed from God? Do you know of their struggles, of the ill health they may be facing, of the depression and anxieties that they may be going through? Friends, in the age of instant communications, we can text each other, we can call each other. Most of us live 15 minutes from each other around this area in Sugarland. We are so much more advantaged than Paul is. We really don't have any excuse, do we, if we're not concerned about each other. And friends, Let me make it really clear that this is not just a job for elders and deacons and church leaders to be concerned for the welfare of each other. Every believer is called to do so. Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, then your master says in John chapter 13, verse 5, by this, all people will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. He's talking to you and me as individuals, not as church leaders, not as groups of people in a broad concept. He's talking about every individual who calls himself a disciple. You have to love one another. That's proof. Now, generally speaking, our ministries here are well attended during Sunday's worship, 
we have most of our members. And typically, if there's any absences, it's because of ill health or travel or whatever else. We have a thriving adults and kids Sunday school. Recently, we're splitting into three classes now for our kids group. Our ladies' Bible study is going really, really strong. But I must say, in love, in love, our Wednesday night prayer meetings have a lot of room to improve. Now, I get it. Wednesday is hump day. We just start at the week. It's at the peak. We feel the most tired. We're looking forward to the weekend. Many of us have young children, and they get cranky, and they have needs, and they're schooling the next morning. They, mis- they misbehave, and we're busy. And friends, I don't want to be legalistic about this. But at the same time, I want to point out how we spend our time indicates our priorities, doesn't it? Doesn't it show what we really value? And so on Wednesday night, let me just challenge you and ask you, what are you doing on Wednesday night? Are you on the couch? Is it Netflix? Is it sports? Is it just zoning out? I want to encourage us. We can do better in this area. What about broader, beyond this local church? What about Christians in other states, in other countries? How much do we know about Christians and the church in Latin America, in Eastern Europe, in Africa, China, Korea, Cambodia, Thailand? There are lots of newsletters today, lots of magazines. Missionaries have blogs. You can go on YouTube for updates. Again, it's all readily available if we really want it to show concern for others. And if you're thinking, hey, showing concern and praying, that's really not my gift. Let us learn from Paul here. Let us learn from what he says in Philemon. If you're not doing it for others, then I exhort you, do it for yourself. Because Paul says, I've derived much comfort, much joy from showing concern, from praying about you, from hearing about you. Do you want to be blessed this morning? If you do, one appointed way that God has given is by showing concern for others, by seeking them out, by praying for them, praying together. That's how God has appointed us to be benefiting spiritually. And so it's blessed to be prayed for but it's equally blessed to be praying for others. And so let's reflect on Paul's example this morning. Let's ask ourselves, where can we do better in showing concern, seeking out others, praying for others? But let us move on. Let us move on. For the rest of this sermon, I want to focus on what exactly does Paul ask for? I want to give you three things. Firstly, he asks for knowledge. He asks for strength. And he gives thanks. Now, at first glance, these three words don't seem to have much to do with each other. What is the common tie behind knowledge, strength, and thanksgiving? And the answer to this lies in Paul's concern that Christians, and in particular the the church in Colossae, that they would keep on increasing in bearing spiritual fruit. All of these three things, knowledge, strength, and thanksgiving, are tied together in this idea of bearing fruit. So last week we saw in verse 6 that Paul says the gospel had come into the world 
and had also gone into the church in Colossae. And they were now bearing fruit. And Paul was so happy to see that and to hear that. And he's asking that they continue to bear fruit. Keep on getting more. If there's five apples on the tree today, I want 10 apples tomorrow. 20 apples next year. 30 apples the year after. Why? It's because bearing fruit is the cause and effect of the gospel, isn't it? Bearing fruit is how non-believers taste the sweetness of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And bearing fruit is a hallmark of you belonging to Christ. John 15 verse 8 tells us, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Prove to be my disciples. Jesus is saying here, it's not that you said a prayer. It's not that you became convicted of your sin. It's not even that you're regularly sitting here under the ministry of the word. It's none of those things. It's not that you're a member here. What matters, what proves definitively that you are a disciple of Christ is that you bear much fruit, much fruit. And that's why Paul is so concerned with praying for knowledge, strength, and thanks, because these are the critical ingredients for producing fruit. Have you ever thought about yourself like that? If you call yourself a Christian, you're a fruit tree. Is that, isn't that an interesting example? You're a fruit tree. And just like fruit trees need sunlight, it needs water, we need knowledge and strength. And just like we are grateful for a harvest of fruits, so we give thanks to God whenever we see the gospel being translated into bearing of fruit. And that's what's happening here. So as we see this and how it all ties together, let's dive down a little bit more into what it means to have knowledge. Why is he praying for knowledge? Verse 9 says, We ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see, for Paul, it all starts with knowledge of God's will. Knowledge of God's will in wisdom and understanding. It's a foundational thing for all Christians everywhere. He doesn't put health. He doesn't put security. He doesn't put protection. He doesn't put comfort. He puts knowledge of all things, knowledge of God's will. Now, how does knowledge help us bear fruit? Well, we can't bear fruit unless we know what it is that pleases God. We need to know what pleases God before we can go and do that, can't we? Or don't we? And so verse 10 links this together. He says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now notice here that he doesn't want us just to have really good knowledge and understanding of the Bible and be able to quote scripture and verse so that we can win debates. And so that we can show how strong we are in our theology and knock others down. He's saying here, I don't want you to have academic knowledge. I want you to have knowledge that is applied, that helps you to live godly, abundant, vibrant lives. That's what wisdom and understanding is, isn't it? It's not just knowledge of scripture. It's knowledge of God's will 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's there to help you produce fruit. It's not there to make you smarter. Now let me give a couple of examples. Imagine if you're in your workplace or you're at school and a friend says to you, you know, I've been thinking, I think I'm actually attracted to the opposite sex. Or maybe someone comes to you and says, my girlfriend and I, she's pregnant. We don't know what to do, but we can't afford it, and I think we need to abort. How do you genuinely love on on them, love on them, without knowing what, what God says about these things? How do you know what to say and what not, uh, not, uh, what not when to say it? How do you know God's position on all these things unless you know his will? Or perhaps you're going through a life situation right now and it's particularly difficult and hard. How are you to produce peace in your life and long-suffering unless you know of God's will for you and his promises his promises that he will provide, his promises that one day there will be no more tears, that all things will be made new again. If you are not in tune with God's will in these areas, if you don't have a knowledge of him, then you really aren't able to bear the spiritual fruit of peace. Or perhaps you're a parent with young kids this morning, as I am. How are you going to know how to honor God in your parenting unless you understand God as God the Father. Unless you understand how he balances love and mercy with justice and righteousness. We have a tendency to be too loving and too doting and we spoil our children. We have another tendency to be ill-tempered and impatient and angry at our children because we expect so much from them. How do we honor God as parents unless we know how he himself acts as God the Father? And so I hope you can see here that knowledge of God, of his will, through his word, is critically important for producing fruit in our lives. Now, many of us actually have a desire to know God's will, don't we? And that's a really good thing. But there's some confusion to this because sometimes we're waiting on God to tell us to make every single decision. We're waiting, as it were, for a voice from heaven to say, yes, do this now. Yes, do that now. Now, it's absolutely true that in the Bible, there are examples where God gives direct revelation for a very specific purpose. We see Moses in the burning bush, for example, where God tells him, I want you to lead the people of Israel out and become a holy nation. And we see from Paul's example how on the road to Damascus, Jesus came and spoke to him and blinded him and he was appointed an apostle to the Gentiles from that moment on. But friends, I'll submit to you that these extraordinary interventions are not meant to be the normal pattern for us. Moses did not have a hotline to God to say, what should I do now? Think about this. Moses was 40 years old when he killed that Egyptian and he ran away into the desert. And for the next 40 years, he lived a boring, mundane life, shepherding sheep. And he grew on and he got married and he grew old. And he thought, that's it. That's the rest of my life. 
There was no visions from God. There was no talking. None of that. And then at 80 years old, that's when God appeared to him in the burning bush. So these revelations are not to indicate the norm for us for how God communicates. And, and friends, what's more, we now live in the post-apostolic age. Well, what does that mean? All the apostles are gone. We have the full canon of scripture, the Bible that's here before us now. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, they were still somewhat looking forward, looking forward to how does God's grand plan unfold itself. And God spoke through the prophets. God spoke through various people to show this is the next step. I've caught Israel out. Israel has disobeyed me. I'm going to break them into two kingdoms. They're going to be exiled. I'm going to send a Messiah. All of these prophets kept on talking about the Messiah until Jesus came. And since Jesus came, he changed the paradigm completely. He tells us, this is no longer for Jews. It's for Gentiles. And my disciples, I want you to go out into all the world now. All the world. And bring in that harvest. And what's more, I want you to look forward to heaven. I want you to live in anticipation of my return. And so now, the word of God tells us how to live in light of that grand salvation plan that's already been established in Jesus. And so, we see that the grand plan is established in Jesus. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. The writer says, long, long ago, at many different times, and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And he did, didn't he? He spoke through the burning bush. He spoke on the mountain. He spoke through Gideon, through the wet sponge. He spoke through the major prophets, the minor prophets. He did all of these things. But hear what he says, but now, but... There is a but here, because the author is trying to say, there's a shift. Something is moving. But in these last days, and we're all living in the last days now, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Do you see what this author is saying here? We need to hear about God's will, his revelation, through his son. Study his son. And you'll know what he wants you to do. Study Jesus and you'll know how to live your life. And if that's not clear enough, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Paul says here, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, don't miss this point now. So that, so that all scripture is breathed out by God, so that the man of God may be complete, complete, equipped for every good work. What God is saying here is, he has given us the tactical survival kit that we need for this journey to heaven. He has given us 
the full instruction manual. We don't need to go and Google, hey, what else do I need here? You know, sometimes as you build new furniture from Ikea, the instructions aren't that good. Or maybe it's just me. But they're not that good, and you have to go and Google, and then you have to get someone else to make a video of how to actually build something together. That's not the case with God. Paul is saying here that God has given us His Word so that we may be complete. Complete for our journey to heaven, complete for living life. And so, friends, we have it today, the Holy Bible. Thank God that we have not been stranded to to our own devices to figure out how do we do this. And so let's, if you're not convinced yet, let's just have a look at the Bible and see what it says about God's will. Let's look at three passages. If you're nearby in Timothy, turn a few pages over and go to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And follow with me as we read this. 1 Thessalonians 4 and at verse 3. We can't miss it. This is the will of God. It's obvious, isn't it? This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God. Paul is saying here, God's will is that you be sanctified, you be holy, that you live differently from the world. Don't be like the world that go after sexual immorality, that go after loose morals and lusts. Be different, be holy, be sanctified. That's my will, God says. And then further on, if you turn to the next chapter, in chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says it again. I'm going to paraphrase phrase backwards now. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's the will of God for you, Christian. Give thanks in all circumstances. Be a grateful people. No matter how hard the circumstances, no matter how life is uh, challenging you, no matter what you're going through, be grateful. That's God's will for you. And lastly, let's turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is near the end of the Bible. It's a few books before the end. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 25. But I've given a wrong reference here. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 25. It's meant to say, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, God is saying here that my will for you, Christian, is that you be good ambassadors and witnesses. So that when a non-Christian looks at you, looks at your life, looks at your decisions, looks at the choices that you make, looks at how you spend your time, looks at how you spend your money, they are going to be shocked. They can't say anything bad about you. Your witness is so powerful that it's going to silence foolish people. 
So we're seeing here three examples of God's will really, really clearly. That we be sanctified, that we be grateful, and that we be ambassadors and witnesses. So let me summarize God's will like this, if you're still wondering. Let's take a step back and think. Why did God create mankind? God created mankind to be image bearers of him. That's why of all the living things, of all the things that are created, only man was God-breathed. And we are there to bear image of him. And God's will, therefore, is that we be conformed to the image of his own son, whom he loves. In other words, God's will is so that we may bear more spiritual fruit, just like his son commanded us to do. And so let me ask you this morning, are you bearing fruit? Are you bearing fruit today? And is the fruit that you're bearing today more than the fruit that you bore last year and the year before and five years ago? And, and compared to the day that you became a professing Christian, is it more than that? Philippians 2 verse 12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And maybe God is showing you that so far along your journey, your knowledge of him has actually been just very academic. It has not translated into wisdom and understanding and the bearing of fruit. Maybe he's showing you that you have not fully submitted every aspect of your life to him. Maybe he's brought you here this morning to show you when it comes to love, money, time, hobbies, You have actually not put it in front of him and given it to him and submitted yourself to him. And friends, if this is you this morning, I urge you, exhort you to take it seriously. Take it seriously because I think God is being incredibly merciful, not having come back yet, not having called you to judgment yet, so that you may have time to repent. And if you are a Christian, then let me ask you, are you immersing yourself in his word Studying his word to discover his will and applying it in your life so that you are more and more like him. Are you studying his word so that you can discern what is right and wrong? Are you studying his word so that you know how to be grateful in all circumstances? Are you studying his word to be good witnesses at your home, at your workplace, at your school? Now let us turn back to to verses 10 and 11. We're moving on to us, our next key word, which is strength. Verse 11 says, being strengthened. So he's saying, this is, we're, we're coming halfway into the prayer, right? And he says, we pray that you will be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with peace. Now, again, we saw earlier on that the purpose of asking for strength is so that they can bear fruit. That's why he asks for it. And Paul knows the Christian life is not a walk in the park. It's not easy to resist sin and to try and be holy as God is holy. It's not easy to be in a workplace and to stand up for truth and justice. It's not easy to be evangelizing in our neighborhoods to be good witnesses. It's not easy to be grateful during a time of trial, is it? And that's why he prays for power. But, you know, power alone will not fail. If we rely on our own power, if Paul says 
God, give them more power. That's not enough. Because by our own power, we will fail. By our own power, we will grow bitter against God and we will quit this Christian life, as many, sadly, have done. What Paul asks for is power from God himself. You see what he says here, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And so Paul is saying here, not just any power, God, your power, the power of the most supreme being in the universe, the power that spoke the world into existence with just words, the power that flooded the whole world in its entirety, the, the power that made Mary pregnant miraculously, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that upholds the world today, and the power that guarantees our salvation. That's the kind of power that Paul is asking for, for these Christians. You know, verse 11 tells us specifically that that power is so that we can have endurance and patience and joy. What is endurance? Endurance is committing to something really hard and and bearing through and bearing it without wavering. It is to finish what we start. It is to follow Christ even when it is tough and hard to do so. What is patience? Patience is tolerating challenges without giving up hope. Patience is looking to the promises of God that he'll make all things new and then we're going to wait on him. We're not going to decide to do something ourselves just to make things work and fit our plans right now. We're going to wait. What is joy? Joy is about choosing to respond with contentment. It's not about happiness. It's about choosing to respond. Because the most obvious choice sometimes is not contentment. It's not happiness. You can be joyful while you're crying. You can be joyful while you're sad. Joy is about showing your belief that God will do all things for his glory and for your good. And so... Paul knows it's easy to be tempted to just throw in the towel and to give up. And that's why he prays for these specific things, endurance, patience, and joy. Now, as I was studying this, I was reminded by this character called Pliable in Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you may have read this book. If you haven't read this book, grab it. Fact, it's the second best-selling book behind the Bible in all of history and time. Forget about New York's bestsellers list. Go to Pilgrim's Progress. History has shown there's so much wisdom in there. But in this book, so Christian decides he needs to leave the city of destruction. It's going to be destroyed. He's going to go to the celestial city, which is symbolic, of course, for heaven. And he's on his way. And there's this man called Pliable. Pliable says, what are you doing? You're crazy. This is a great city. We've got conveniences. We've got pleasures. We have everything that we want to do. It's cultured. Why would you want to leave? And he chases after uh, Christian to try and convince him to turn back. But as Christian talks to him and tells him, here's why I'm leaving, Pliable is captivated and fascinated by how Christian talks about the celestial city. There's going to be fruits that will never weather They're planted by streams of water that will give all life. 
The streets, can you believe it? The streets are going to be paved with gold. And Pliable is convinced, hey, yeah, let's do it. Let me come on this journey with you because it sounds like a great city to go into. And they fall into deep conversation and they walk and they get so engrossed in what they're, uh, the, the topic of conversation that they didn't see the swamp ahead and they walk straight into it. And that swamp in Old English is called the Slough of Despond. And what does that mean? The Slough of Despond is really a symbol for all the depression, all the anxieties, all the doubts and fears of what it means to follow Christ. And every single Christian, if you are a Christian, will very, very soon fall into the slough of despond. You will face challenges in your walk. And they almost drown. They struggle because the swamp drags them down. And thankfully, Pliables reaches out to the side and pulls himself out. But as he gets out, he sees he's all muddied and dirtied. He had a near-death experience. And he gets angry. He gets angry because no one told him it was going to be so tough to be on this journey. He gets angry because he's left behind comfort, cleanliness, the accolades, the love of his family and friends, having a good time. He's left all of that behind for this mess. No thanks. No thanks. And with that, he decides to turn back to the city of destruction. You see, Pliable is a man who is weak. He lacks resolution. He is the opposite of endurance, patience, and joy. His strength is not powered by God. His strength is powered by self-will. And when he jumps or falls into the swamp, his own will, his own power could not get him going again for the next stage of the journey. Friends, if you're a Christian this morning, I want you to know that being a Christian is costly, inconvenient, and uncomfortable. Some of us may lose our lives over it. Some of us will not get promoted because of it. Some of us will lose our jobs. Some of us will be mocked at at school. And we will have hot tears streaming down our faces because we get laughed at and mocked by everyone who would laugh at us for being a Christian for not wanting to do the things that your friends are telling you to do. Your college professor may laugh at you and say, what ridiculous things that you believe in. But I want to encourage you, don't turn back. Don't turn back. Jesus is worth it. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, no one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back, no one who looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. And I don't know what your life circumstances this morning. You may be struggling against sin. It may be a long time since you have met with the people of God. But God is telling you this morning, don't turn back. He says to you, his promises are true. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Are you relying on God? If you're not, Let me encourage you to rely on God. What does that mean? Let me give three pragmatic suggestions here. Firstly, turn to him and pray. Turn to him and pray. Ask for relief. But if he does not give you relief, ask that he will give you his power to sustain you through whatever circumstance you're going through. 
Ask for endurance and patience and joy. Ask that His power may be perfect in your weakness. And then, after you have asked, trust in His promises. Trust Him when He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Secondly, as we saw in the last section, study God's Word. Study God's Word so that you may learn about who He is and His will for you. See clearly His faithfulness throughout all the ages from the time that He called Abraham all the way till now. See His steadfast love for the Israelites and then more generally for Jews and Gentiles. See His promise of no more tears of a new creation. Read daily and be reminded of His love for you. And then lastly, turn to His community. Do not turn to this church. This church is a gathering of people, but this church, more importantly, is His community. So turn to His community. Open up to the brothers and sisters who are around you and let God display His power through His people. We saw earlier today, love one another, bear fruit. That's an encouragement not just to us as individuals, but to us as a whole community of people. Remember, Colossae was a community of people that Paul was writing to. We're here because we're on a journey together. So I want to encourage you, experience God's power through this local congregation. How do you do that? It's quite easy. Just turn up. Turn up for Sunday school. Turn up for ladies' Bible study. Turn up for men's breakfast. Turn up for prayer meeting. Come early. And when things finish, don't just leave. Stay behind. Fellowship. Share your joys. Share your troubles. Share your sufferings. And over time, you will see, I promise you, you will see yourself strengthened in your walk with God. And we come to our last point, and I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to keep it brief. We're looking at verse 12 to 14, where Paul says, I give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Last week, Dr. Johnston said it, was, it is good that Christians be praying and thanking God. It's always good to be thanking God. And here we see two points of thanks from Paul. Firstly, we see that he thanks God because God has saved the, the Christians in Colossae into the universal family of believers. They now share in the inheritance of saints. Now, reading this today, we might not think much of it. But reading it then, it was not a light comment. Remember this. Paul was a Jew. He had been trained as the most Jewish of all Jews. And here, he is welcoming these Christians in Colossae into the family. They are Gentiles. They are outside the faith. Traditionally, they're outside the covenant. They are not deserving of God's steadfast love. They were from a different culture. They were following after the the ways of the Greeks. And more importantly, they were strangers, as I noted earlier on. But he welcomes them, not because of the race, or the background, or the interests, or their their hobbies. He welcomes them because they are fellow saints. Those of you who have been 
in church for a while know that the word saint means to be set apart. It's very different from the Roman Catholic church concept of what a saint is. If you are a believer in Christ, you're producing fruit this morning, you are a saint. Isn't that amazing? You don't have to produce a miracle like the Roman Catholic Church requires for you to be named a saint. You don't need someone to come and confer sainthood to you. A saint is someone who's been set apart to live holy lives, who, to, to, to be set apart to produce fruit. Galatians 3 therefore tells us there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male, no female, you are all one in Christ. And so Christian, this morning, if you are a believer, you are part of the household of God with Abraham, with Moses, with Jacob and Isaac, with Daniel, with Paul, Yes, with these Christians in the church in Colossae. Isn't that wonderful to be Christians, to be members of this family? The second thing that Paul thanks God for is the miraculous work that he has done in saving Colossians and indeed Christians everywhere. Saving work is not an easy thing. Look at verse 12. He says, God has now qualified us. Now, this concept of qualification, he explains it in verse 13 and 14. He tells us previously we were under the authority and rule of darkness. We were not qualified. We are not even invited to the party. Now, in a a little bit under 12 months, we're going to have the Olympics game next July, uh, Olympic Games in Paris. And some of you may know that you don't just get to put your hand up and say, I want to run in the Olympic Games. Yes, please. You need to be qualified. There's a minimum bar before you even get an invitation. And so if you were running in the 100-meter race, you need to be able to run in less than 10 seconds before anyone will even talk to you. And if you wanted to participate in long jump, you need to jump 8.27 meters exactly and more before anyone would even talk to you. And the reality is that none of us here, no matter how hard we train, no matter the diet that we keep, I don't want to be a naysayer, but reality is none of us will really participate in the Olympic Games, right? But imagine if tomorrow morning you wake up, you're leaner, you've got 6% fat content, your muscles have doubled in size, your stride has widened, and you realize, hey, Something miraculous has changed. Someone outside of myself has transformed me. And sure enough, you go for a trial run and you realize you're running sub below 10 seconds. It's a really poor example of qualification, but now you are qualified. Outside of your own power, outside of your own training, outside of your own strength, you are now qualified. And that's the same with God's family. The qualifications required to be in God's family is that you be perfect, just as he is perfect. And none of us are qualified to be in that family. But now, things have changed. God gave us Jesus in his mercy to die on the cross for us. Jesus led a holy and blameless life. And when he died, his blood covered all of our sins, so that when God looks at us now, he sees not our sins, 
but he sees perfection, holiness through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for that. He sees qualifications. He has qualified us to go from darkness into light. And friends, if this is not amazing to you, it should be. It's spiritual childbirth. It's being made alive again from being dead into life. And that should fill us with gratitude and thanksgiving for every single conversion, every single person who becomes a believer. We should be grateful to God for that because he has done a miraculous saving work. And that's why Paul expresses thanks in these verses here. And so this morning, let me say to you, if you've never trusted in Christ, let me urge you to turn to him. Turn to him. He can qualify you. He will qualify you to share in his kingdom. And brothers and sisters, as we close this morning, let us resolve to be more like Paul in his prayer. Let us resolve to show concern for each other, to seek each other out, to pray for each other. Let us pray for one another. And specifically, let us pray not just for good health or comfort or relief from illness and circumstances as all these things are important as they are. But let us pray for knowledge and strength so that we can bear more fruit. And let us thank God, be grateful to God that he has brought us all, including Gentiles. We are Gentiles into his family. And let us thank God for the great salvific work he is doing across all the world. Amen. God, thank you for your word that is recorded down through the ages for us. Thank you that you have given us an example of how to pray. We pray, God, that your word may go out and may not return void or empty, but may produce in us an effective and fruitful work that we may 